Amen. Good morning. Labor Day tomorrow. You're going to labor in the yard, right? No? Labor on the grill, maybe. Some of you are going to labor. We, we, uh, we're thankful for that. Hey, Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. Ryan and Paul are uh, in Akoe with the students. They took a Labor Day rafting trip. And I've been down that river a lot. Really enjoy it. Justin's got the day off. So um, anyway, appreciate always you as a church, how you, uh, you allow us and serve us. Some days we, we do need off. Pray for me the next two Sundays. Next week I'll be down in Picayune um, at Roseland Park Baptist Church. They're doing kind of like a one-day evangelistic uh, effort. And I'll be preaching three times next Sunday. Um, and then uh, the following Sunday, I'll be doing some, uh, some supply work in our county. Acts chapter 8 is where we'll be last week. Justin uh, managed to get through the first seven chapters of Acts again, right? It's pretty cool. Thankful he did that. Um, and he'll make fun of me this week that it'll take me longer to get through eight verses than in seven chapters, but that's where we find ourselves. Acts chapter 8, let's read the passage together. Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all, underline this word, we'll come back to it in a few minutes, they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered, there it is again, went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city or a city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the word this morning, that we would seek our lives to be like your people here, who just simply live their lives so that Christ would be known. Be with us now, and Holy Spirit, we pray you would teach us, convict us, exhort us, encourage us. Whatever we need this morning, use the Word to do that and accomplish your purpose and your will. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to kind of summarize again where we're headed because we're back in Acts now, and every week from here on, probably till Christmas, we'll be in Acts, walking through it verse by verse. If you'll remember, this is how Acts Breaks down where we're at. Acts chapter 1. Remember our arrows and our logo. What happened first? Jesus went up. Acts chapter 2. The Spirit came down. And the rest of the book is about the church going out as Christ's witnesses. Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Jesus, before He went to heaven, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, literally witnesses belonging to me, witnesses before me, of me, my witnesses. Where? Because this is important, where we're headed this morning. First in Jerusalem, 
then in Judea, then in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So it's almost like Acts 1-8, Jesus in Jerusalem, Google Maps, here we are, and Jesus says, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and then you click the zoom out button. In Judea, zoom out. In Samaria, zoom out all the way to the ends of the earth. Where we're at this morning is crucial. The next three chapters or four chapters in the book of Acts show us how we are now beginning phase two. Sometimes when you hear the word phase, all y'all think about is like Marvel movies, right? There are four phases in, so if you don't know what I'm talking about, okay. There's four phases in the book of Acts. Phase one, Jerusalem. Phase two, Judea. Quickly, phase three, Samaria. And then the rest of the book, phase four, to the ends of the earth. This is how it is. Beginning at Pentecost, we see the church going out to Jerusalem. Where we start today through chapter 12 will be the church going out to Judea and Samaria. And then the second half of the book, it's almost like Luke intentionally divided the book this way. The second half of the book is the church going to the ends of the earth. And check this out, y'all. We're like in Acts chapter 29. We are continuing what has already been done. But if you'll notice where we're at this morning, the first verse that we read, something has happened. The first Christian martyr has died. We studied him this spring. Justin mentioned him last week. And so, you know, a little inside preacher stuff. I think Stephen is Justin's favorite character to preach on. He's the first Christian martyr. He served in some ways of what we know now to be a deacon. So I will tell Clay and Michael Trest and Philip Slaughter and Casey Hicks, if you serve as a deacon, be prepared to die, okay? Because the first, the first deacon gave his life for Christ. I think it's important to note, many times today we're talking about a purpose-driven life. Stephen had a purpose-driven death. Not only will our life proclaim the gospel, but what was Stephen's final words? It was the final words of Jesus on the cross. Lord, forgive them. They don't know what they're, they're doing. Don't hold this sin against them. And Stephen had a purpose-driven death. He dies... And immediately it says in 8.1 that there arose on that day a great persecution. And what happens is the persecution starts sending, check this out, the church from Jerusalem to where? Judea and Samaria. The page turns. The church has been out in Jerusalem, but now they shift because they're forced out to go out into Judea and Samaria, and that's the title of the message this morning, Out to Judea and Samaria. I want you to see first, big truth number one this morning, I want you to see the persecution in Jerusalem. We find Saul of Tarsus, who we were introduced to back in chapter 7, verse 58. It says that while Stephen was being stoned, we know how stoning worked in the first century, the accused victim, after being convicted at a trial, was pushed off a 10 to 12 foot embankment, and someone would roll a boulder, and if that didn't finish, they would continue until the person died. This is more about like picking up rocks, because this wasn't 
it, it was more like a mob rule, right? Stephen wasn't convicted really of anything formally. They gnashed their teeth. His holiness and his truth enraged them. They take him outside the city and, and they lynch him essentially. And the Bible introduces us in chapter 7, verse 58, to a young man named Saul who is holding the garments. He's kind of like the coat rack. And whereas most of the time in stoning, the victim would be stripped and stoned, here Stephen's fully clothed and the stoners are, what are they doing? They're taking off their clothes so that they can have more range of motion to be able to pelt him with stones. It's a crazy scene. And so Saul is told, we're told that Saul's standing there, he's holding garments, and then if you'll notice, in chapter 8, verse 1, Saul is there approving of the execution. Saul of Tarsus will later say in the book of Acts that he cast his vote against Stephen, which almost implies we, we know that Saul was a Pharisee. He was probably a member of the Sanhedrin. You'll see just in a minute how all this connects. But notice when we get down to verse 3, Saul is ravaging the church. And it's almost as, as if Luke is saying this persecution arises and the personification of the hatred and vitriol and violence toward the Christian church is in this dude named Saul of Tarsus. What is the result? A great persecution against the church in Jerusalem and they were all scattered. Now, before we jump in a little more, I want you to notice it says that the apostles weren't scattered. The apostles remained in Jerusalem. That's very interesting. Why is that? It goes back to something that Justin brought out a lot in our spring study. You remember, and he brought it out last week, you remember inside Jerusalem, there were synagogues for the free men, for the Hellenists, for the Greek-speaking Jews. And we're told back in chapter 6, verse 9, if you'll just flip back, because I just want you to see it. Chapter 6, verse 9, you'll notice that Stephen was doing great work. That's in verse 8. And then notice, some of whom belonged to the synagogue of the freemen, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and those from, notice where? Cilicia. The dispute was not really among Hebrew-speaking Jews. It was among Greek-speaking Jews. And we find out later on in the book of Acts that Saul of Tarsus, guess where he's from? He's from Tarsus of Cilicia. So why is Luke bringing up Saul of Tarsus at the execution of Stephen? It's probably because Saul of Tarsus was in from the beginning with this disagreement with Stephen, this enragement against Stephen, and ultimately he is there applauding as Stephen dies. You see how the dots are starting to connect? So this persecution was primarily among Greek-speaking Jews, and so the Hellenist Christians, they found themselves being run out of Jerusalem. And if you remember from our study in chapter 4 and 5, because of the great works of the apostles, you remember Justin talked about last week how some people are like, we respect y'all, we ain't joining y'all, because we don't want to get beat up and called in, but we respect y'all. And so the apostles, in some ways right here, in a very unique move of the sovereignty of God are in some sense protected at this time from persecution, but the everyday Christian, particularly the Greek-speaking Christians, Jewish Christians, are run out of the city. Now next week, you'll probably see why the apostles are remaining in Jerusalem. This, this is, and, and we're about to get to this. This is pretty, this is pretty awesome when you see what, 
what God's doing. I, I wanted to state all that to, to connect a few dots. So, so under this, the persecution in Jerusalem, I want you to see first, that persecution scattered the church. They're run out. The church is leaving. The, the believers are having to move. They were all scattered. And where were they scattered? They were scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. A little geography. If you're looking at Palestine, Jerusalem, southern Palestine, that's the area of Judea at this time. Northern Palestine, Galilee, Sea of Galilee, a lot of the miracles that were done. In between was this region called Samaria. So the church being run out of Jerusalem, where were they going? They were going out into the region of Judea, and then even some were going north into Samaria. I think it's interesting here. Saul of Tarsus, at this time a sinner, full of evil, hatred. He's an enemy of the gospel. But always remember this. Even the worst evil of man can be used in the purposes of God for good. Now, you know why? What word did I have you underline a couple times when we were reading? Scattered. Scattered. The Greek word there comes from the word that's used in the parable of the sower. A sower went out to sow seed, to cast seed to throw seed, to scatter seed. This word was later used as a noun of a scattering. You may have heard our other places in the New Testament, the dispersion, the, the scattering. And so here's what's happening. The church is scattered, and from man's point of view, it looks like the church is getting beat up, and they're fearing for their life, and they're being threatened. And notice what it says in verse 3. What was Paul doing? He was ravaging the church. That word there is used, was used in ancient Greek language of the picture of a wild boar going in a vineyard and just bull in a china shop, just tearing up everything. The Bible says here that Saul was entering house after house. He was dragging off men, and notice, and women, throwing them in prison. And so Christians are leaving Jerusalem. They're going left and right. We, we need to get out of Jerusalem because Saul of Tarsus is coming. But you know what? From the 30,000 angle view of the sovereignty of God, what is God doing? He's taking his saints and he's scattering the seed of the gospel. That's what Luke's telling us there. The church is scattered. And from our point of view, it's horrible because it's persecution. But from God's point of view, God allowed persecution in Jerusalem to get his people out of Jerusalem into Judea and into Samaria. Can I just tell you again? Nothing can happen to the Christian unless God signs off on it. And everything that God signs off on and allows to happen or decrees to happen is ultimately for his greater glory and our greater good. Nothing can happen to the Christian unless God signs the, the permission slip for it. And God doesn't answer to a principal or a teacher or school board or anything. He's God. And so, what we should look at in immediate possibly despair and say, man, this persecution, God is flinging his people into different Places. But I want you to also see, not only did persecution scatter the church, but persecution strengthened the church. Verse 4. Those who were, what? Scattered. Here they are. 
God's putting them in different places. God's using even the evil of man to put them in the places. What do they do? They went about preaching the Word. They didn't go about hiding their light under a bushel. They did not go about being quiet lest we get lumped in to Jesus the Nazarene. The persecution that they faced emboldened them to preach Christ all the more. I was thinking like, why, why would they do that? Could it be that God used the death of Stephen to show the rest of the church that Jesus really is worth everything? And that when you find Christ and Christ finds you, you find the treasure hidden in the field. You find the pearl of great price. You find the one to whom everything else is nothing. It's a tough drive home from Hattiesburg last night. Four overtimes. Eagles lost. I was riding. Lauren's parents were in the car. Lauren was in the car. And I, I think I talked the whole way home. And I wasn't trying to be like, you know, post-game analysis, color analyst. I got I to gotta talk about this Monday on, on Eagle Hour, so I might as well talk about it now. You know what I'm talking about? But I, then I think I finally said, just makes me so mad because I'm so invested. And then like this morning, it was like, it's a football game. And we're probably going to win more than three games this year. I'm still invested. <laughs> still mad. But, but, but what you see the church doing here is that they're saying, Christ is worth everything. Nothing compares to Him. So we're going to talk more about Him. You see, when circumstances start crushing in on us, we find out real quick what's most valuable to us. We find out what really matters. And most of the time, we find ourselves then talking about it. I think they also understood that God's sovereignty was obviously playing into this. God was allowing it. Now, I want you to notice, when we're in verse 4, those who were scattered. Where, where are the apostles? Where are they? They're, they're not being scattered, where are they? They're still in Jerusalem, right? So who is this? Who are these that were scattered? We'll find out in just in a minute. It was Philip, so probably those seven that were scattered. But check this out. Those who were scattered is not the apostles. It's not the church leaders. Who is it? It's y'all. And I love the word that it says they preached the word. I get the fact in our society there's two types or at least we should know that there's two types of preaching. There's a formal preaching that we're doing right now with, with the people of God gathered. The Word's open. We're looking at it. We're examining it. We're pulling out truth from it. I'm doing that. I, I get that. But, but there should be. There, there should be a preaching element to your life. Not that you stand up like some pulpit from the post office and like God tells you to do that. Like get after it. But you see, it just says like they were going. So as they're going, guess what they're doing? They're throwing seed. They're proclaiming Christ in their friendships, at tailgates, at the sportsplex, hanging out in a coffee shop. 
It was just like wherever you met these people, there was proclamation about Christ. And so here's my question to us this morning first. Does persecution or difficulty push us down or propel us out? Does persecution push us down? Does persecution or difficulty suppress witness for Christ? Or does it propel us out to be His witnesses? What do we see the church here doing? Times get tough, more Jesus. Times get difficult, we'll talk about Him more. It could be that sometimes we face difficulty. I'm not saying this like pronouncement-wise. I'm just saying sometimes it could be it could be difficulties in our life because God's trying to cut off peripherals in our life to cause us to focus on the most worthy task of all. That's knowing Jesus and making Him known. The persecution in Jerusalem. Secondly, Luke zooms in, back in again. He's, he said this. He's, he's telling us what's going on. Then he zooms in on one of these episodes of someone that was scattered. And who is it? It's Philip. Notice what it says in verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. We see the persecution in Jerusalem and God used it to scatter his people, to strengthen his people. But now we zoom in on Philip's ministry in Samaria. That's big truth number two this morning. I want you to see Philip's ministry in Samaria. We need to answer a few questions. So who's Philip? Because there, there's, you know, sometimes as creative as Hebrew names can be or Greek names can be, sometimes there was just something in the water that they named everybody the same name. You're right. You're reading the New Testament and you got like 42 James and you got, uh, you got different Philips and who are these people, right? So we have one Philip that was a disciple of Jesus. That's not this guy. How do we know that? Because that Philip is in Jerusalem based off verse 1 with the other 11 apostles. Who is this Philip? Just for your reference, if you'll just note Acts chapter 6, verse 5. This was one of the seven that were chosen by the congregation to serve. Remember, the Hellenist Jews were being overlooked. And the apostles said, we're not going to use all of our time in social service. Social service is important, but what's most important is the ministry of the Word of God in prayer. So we're going to appoint men from the congregation. They're going to overlook this. It, it's not that, that one has to be sacrificed for the sake of the other. Both are important, but within those both activities, guess what? The spiritual activity is more important because we can feed people's stomachs, and they'll get hungry again tomorrow, and eventually that stomach will pass away and die, but people live forever. So we're going to prioritize the preaching of the gospel while we carry out social service. While we do it. This was Philip, one of the six, or one of the seven. So again, if you serve as a deacon, be prepared to die. But maybe sometimes God wants you to go down to a city in Samaria and proclaim to them the Christ. Clay, get after it. All right. What did Philip do? So, who, so who's Philip? That, that, that's him. One of the seven. But notice what it says. Philip went down to the city of Samaria, or some of your 
translations say a, a city of Samaria. Just let me mention this real quick, because sometimes it, it's great when you walk through the passages, you can bring up stuff like this. And, and we, we always want to make mention of things like this. So the city of Samaria was actually the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. When the kingdom split uh, under the reign of Rehoboam in the Old Testament, and she had the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom, the ten northern tribes, their capital city was Samaria. Later on, I think in B.C. 27, this city was actually renamed in honor of Caesar Augustus, and it was called Sebasti. And so some scholars see this, and they say Luke's not talking about the actual city of Sebasti, formerly known as Samaria. Some scholars say this is that actual city, and Luke uses that. What's the point? Whether it's the city or a city, the point is the gospel is now what? In phase three, going to Samaria. And why is that important? Because as some of you know, the Samaritans didn't jihaw very well with the Jews. Why? Split kingdom, 10 northern tribes, not one godly king in their entire existence. In 722, the Assyrians come in and wipe the northern kingdom off the face of the map. There were some Jews that stuck around and there were some Jews that intermarried with the Assyrians. And they stayed kind of in the middle of Palestine. And as you get later and later from that Assyria, after that Assyrian rule and think about it, you know, 722 and you get 600, 500, 400, the countdown to Jesus, you know, the Samaritans actually developed their own religious system. They had their own version of the first five books of Moses. And they had tweaked it. <laughs> they circumcised their sons. If you remember in John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman asked Jesus a question. You Jews worship in Jerusalem, we worship in Mount Gerizim. Which one's right? And so the Samaritans not only had a mixed lineage to the Jews, they had a mixed up religion. One guy said it this way. The Jews viewed the Samaritans as half-breeds and heretics. And the Jews were racially biased against them, which that's usually what comes to our mind, right? Like, you know, when we think about the Samaritans, other oh, Jews, they're racist, they would go out of the way, you know, and they would never go through Samaria. But like this week, it was like, oh, wow, it wasn't just the fact that they were, you know, wrong in that, but there were honest Jews that looked and say, hey, he didn't tell us to worship Mount Gerizim. He told us to worship where he put his name in Jerusalem. And we don't adulterate five books of Moses. We, we honor the word. And so there is, in some sense, the Jewish disregard for the Samaritans, whereas wrongly in the racial area, there were some Jews that looked down on the Samaritans or in some ways cast that stink eye at them because they were, they were heretics. And what happens here, y'all? God scatters his church, and where does Philip go? To Samaria. To the land of half-breeds and heretics. And what did he do? He went down to the city of Samaria, and he proclaimed to them the Christ. I love this. I want you to see first and foremost that Philip crossed cultural bridges. This is a big deal. This is why Luke keys in on it. This is one of those times... 
where we see that the gospel is not for just one small group of people that looks like us. The gospel is for the world. Christ died for the sins of the world. And we see the church throughout the book of Acts crossing these cultural bridges. The first really cultural bridge, y'all, is the incarnation, isn't it? I mean, there's a big ginormous leap between heaven and earth. The Son of God stepping out of heaven, clothing Himself in our flesh, and living among us. That's a big cultural bridge. But what does Philip do here? He, he goes across the bridge, goes across the highway, I'm going to go hang out with what we call half-breeds and heretics, and I'm going to go hang out with them and preach Christ. Acts chapter 10, you see Peter doing that. He goes and eats in a Gentile's house named Cornelius, right? Acts chapter 11, Christians that are scattered hang out with Greek-speaking Jews. Acts chapter 13, the church at Antioch sends out Paul and Barnabas and they start preaching the gospel. Acts chapter 16, the gospel goes to Europe, which is why you're here this morning. And what do we see in the book of Acts? Philip really is the trailblazer here. You see someone saying, I'm different than them. I look different than them. We don't agree on everything, but check this out. They need the gospel, and so I'm going to go. So much practical wisdom here for us. But what did he do when he crossed this cultural bridge? I want you to see also he... He, he carried the truth. He took Christ with him. Or he took Christ to them. We can miss that, can't we? Many things today in the name of the Christian church are all about diversity and all about including and all about checking off the right political boxes to make sure we have everything carried. But guess what? The church will carry everything into that dynamic except Christ. Because there's no mention of sin. There's no mention of repentance of sin. There's no mention of the reason Jesus had to die. There's no, there's no urgency to believe the gospel because heaven and hell cometh quickly. We've got to make sure as we reach out to people that guess what? We carry Christ to them. What did he do? He went down to the city of Samaria and he proclaimed to them, now notice what it says, definite article, the Christ. Why is that important? Because in the Samaritans in their mixed up theology, they had a concept that Messiah or ruler would come. Just kind of like today, we got people that use the name of Jesus, but guess what? We ain't talking about the same Jesus. Like very respectfully, let me just tell you, the Jesus of Mormonism is not Jesus. Our exalted ruling reigning Christ is not the half-spirit brother of Satan. He was not born sometime in eternity. He exists from everlasting to everlasting. He's Christ. And we don't use that truth to look down on people that misuse the name of Jesus or have wrong pictures or thoughts of Jesus. Guess what we do? We go to them with Jesus. We don't proclaim a Christ, we proclaim the Christ. We share with them the Christ. I find it interesting, look in verse 4, it says they preach the word. But in verse 5, Philip specifically preaches the Christ. I don't want us to miss this. I want you to see first, he proclaimed the word. 
Philip is included in this group of people scattered to proclaim the word. And the word, word there, it's not talking about like the word of God proper. New Testament's not written at this time, right? It's being, it's being lived. It's being, it's happening. This is the collected message of Jesus and the apostles. Isn't this good right here that Philip's not preaching his word, he's preaching the word of Jesus and what the apostles taught in Jerusalem. Amen? Check this out. If you come up with something and it's your message, it probably ain't the message of Jesus and the apostles. It's probably Taco Bell last night. Ain't the Holy Spirit. If we think God spoke to us, let's go find chapter and verse and see if it lines up. Amen? That's how cults get started. God told me. No, God already said it. Just be the mailman. Just pass it on. It's already written. He proclaimed to them the word. He preached the word. He, he shared the message of Christ. But then notice, and this is so important. Verse 5, he proclaimed to them the Christ. Y'all, we, we, we aren't used car salesmen like telling people why they need to buy something. We share a living person. I was finishing up a paper this week and it's really cool. I had a British professor this summer whose name was Dr. Strange. That's pretty cool. I wrote a paper for Dr. Strange. I had to read some of his books. One of those quotes I used in my paper, he said something like this. This is in a technical academic setting, so I don't have to nail the quote. He said, Christians are in the business of offering a living person. We don't just share like four steps and say that'll fix your life because four steps will never fix anybody's life. But a living Christ enthroned and exalted at the right hand of the Father, every enemy is becoming his footstool. He rules and reigns forever. He can save anybody to the uttermost. Don't you just love it that he didn't preach himself? He didn't preach his angle. He didn't give his opinion. He proclaimed to them the Christ. It kind of takes pressure off us, doesn't it? You know what God wants you to share in your interactions and the conversations you have with people? He just wants you to share Christ. What does that mean? Like, okay, thank you. I'll just walk up to somebody and go, Christ, and everything will be fixed. Like, what does that mean? <laughs> two, two things. It... it it means who Jesus is, and it means what he's done. You, you could include number three, what he's coming to do. So, so who is Jesus? He's the Son of God. He's existed forever. He rules and reigns as Lord of all. 2,000 years ago, he took on flesh, and he lived in our place. He lived a perfect life. We've completely failed, but he lived perfect life. And then he went to the cross and everybody thought the Romans were just executing him because the Jews were mad. But when he was dying on the cross, he took the sins of the world on his behalf, on our behalf. And God poured out all the judgment of sin upon him. And he was buried. He was certified as dead. But three days later, he rose bodily from the grave. He conquered sin and death. And now he rules and reigns at God's right hand and he's coming soon one day. And then you can slip in the bit about, and he changed my life. I was dead. And he brought me to life. I was trusting my own self and my own religion and my own church attendance and my own works. And I came to realize I could never 
satisfy God by my own works. So I found out that Jesus had already come and done all that. And so I don't trust myself anymore. I trust him. And he's changed my life. And he's coming back. And he's given us time to turn and believe. And every road that Americans go down left and right, materialism and sports and entertainment and selfishness and self-centeredness, it only ends in sorrow and ultimately hell. But Christ is the answer to the human heart because he's the only one that made the human heart. And see, it's not a used car salesman. You talk about the things that are valuable to you. How valuable is Christ? Go home and think about that in this week. Write it down. I think it is good to kind of have an, an elevator pitch, right? You got 30 seconds with somebody? Jesus. Maybe you got an hour with somebody. Maybe God allows you to have a conversation. I, I had a conversation just this past week with, with two guys who had just experienced someone close to them that died, and we were just... As my father-in-law said, chewing the fat. And that got brought up. Five, six minutes, gospel, man. We're not offering a sales insurance policy. We're offering a person who is alive. Just ask you this, who do we proclaim? 2 Corinthians 4, 5 says, we don't proclaim ourselves. We proclaim Christ as Lord. Quickly, let's look at these last two verses. These are fun verses, especially for you guys with a Baptist background. Look at it. For unclean spirits. What is that? <laughs> Crying out with a loud voice. What is that? <laughs> Came out of many who had them. Many who were paralyzed or lame were healed and there was much joy in that city. I shouldn't beat up the Baptists. I'm just one of them. So it's an easy, clean shot. I want you to see third in this text, God's power at work. <laughs> and let me, let me say this. And I think there's a case to be made biblically and experientially that even if we can't see it, when we proclaim Christ, God is at work powerfully. Even if we don't see it. Philip saw it. It's pretty cool what he saw. I think there's a case to be made that God sovereignly scatters His people and He puts them in unique places. There's a reason why you live where you live. There's a reason why you have the job that you have. There's a reason why your circumstances in your life are a certain way. And even when we make dumb decisions and all that gets shook up because of our decisions, check this out, like God is still orchestrating things for His glory and our good. And he scatters us so that Christ may be proclaimed. And where Christ is faithfully proclaimed, God's at work. Now, this is pretty awesome right here. I want you to see, how did God work powerfully in this area of Samaria? I think this is really good. By God's power, the crowds paid attention. Verse 6, Luke says it. And the crowds with one accord paid attention. I understand that in that time, Technology did not exist, and probably the human attention span was a little longer. I get that. And there's some mornings when we may be sharing the Word, and either by 
our lack of spiritual preparation or your lack of spiritual preparation or a lack of coffee on both parties, the sermon is over five minutes into it, right? It's always encouraging me to hear about Pat preachers of old. We're, I'm meeting with some other ministers leading a study on this great preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones. And uh, preached at the Westminster Chapel for, for over 20 years. He was a doctor before he became a preacher. And he was such a good doctor that even in London, when he was a pastor, the royal family would still call on him because he was such a good doctor. But he, was, he would captivate. People would just sit there for an hour or so listening. But one lady said, you know, some Sunday mornings, it's like we're raptured up into the presence of God as Dr. Jones, Lloyd-Jones is preaching. We're captured eternities at, at, at every word and we're in awe of the presence of God. And then some Sunday mornings, five minutes in, we say the good doctor is on his own this morning. But there is a spiritual attuneness that God provides for people to heed the Word. And it's not just like we're in a room and the Word's good and the Spirit's speaking and the preacher in, in spite of all that he is not, God is using. There, there's a captivation. But I think this doesn't just speak to the fact Philip was like preaching and they were, they were hanging on every word. I think this speaks to the fact that when they left Philip's presence, when they got home, guess what? The, the sermon did not just leave the room. The public proclamation, it went home with them. It haunted their conscience. Their sin was before them. They realized they couldn't save themselves. They may reject the message, but they had to pay attention to it. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Particularly, how did they pay attention? They, they heard what was being said and they saw the signs that he did. This is a reminder that this book is not the acts of the apostles or Philip, it's the acts of the Holy Spirit through the apostles, particularly here, even a deacon named Philip. So they paid attention. God was working. The people were heeding the word, but also notice God's was powerfully overpowering Satan. Verse seven, unclean spirits cried out with a loud voice, came out of many. I could stop here and tell y'all demon stories from India. We could have like demon stories with Luke, but I'm not going to go into all that, okay? Let me just tell you this. Demonic possession, demonic oppression existed in the New Testament. It still exists today. We have an enemy. Now, praise God, if you are under the blood of Jesus, you cannot be possessed. We are sealed by the Spirit of God. There are... Certain things, some people would take exception to this. That's fine. Not in here, but just other places. There are certain things as psychological conditions. There are things as chemical imbalances. I don't deny all those, but check this out. There are just some things in society that are just demon-possessed. And there are some people in society that are just demon-possessed. I got a buddy, he's an LPC, and he said a lot, not all, because he teaches psychology and sociology, but he says a lot of modern psychology is nothing more than chaining up demoniacs. I think there's a lot of truth to that statement. If you're on medication, you got, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not throwing you under the bus. I'm, I'm, not saying, I'm not saying anybody that takes medicine is demon-possessed, okay? I did not say that. There we go. What I am saying, though, is that the work of Satan did not just like vanish and is no more. But you know what we find in this text? 
is that where God is at work, God wins. Demons are cast out. Satan's hold on people's lives is loosed. And that may help some of you know how to pray. Man, you've shared, you've loved, and man, it's just like somebody can't get out of the ditch. Start praying that way. Lord, overpower Satan's hand in that person's life. Spiritual warfare is real. If you want to have demon stories with Luke, come hit me up later, okay? Many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. This is extraordinary. And this is so awesome, y'all. This is not an apostle. God uses the prayers and simple lives of his people. This is so encouraging. You don't have to phone the preacher all the time. You pray. You serve. You have the same spirit of God that every believer has. And notice the result in verse 8. This is where we'll land the plane. So there was much joy in that city. When God works, guess what? It produces great joy. There's a difference between joy and happiness. Do you know that? There's a difference. One's a fruit of the Spirit. (laughs) Happiness is great. Most of the time it's based off circumstances. It's external. Our team won. You know, if Jones wins and West Jones wins and Southern wins and the Saints win, like I'm happy. And if we go 0 for 4, I can get dejected on Monday. Happiness is based off circumstances. And if you live based off your circumstances, guess what? You'll be a roller coaster every day of your life. But what's joy? Joy is an internal condition and fruit produced by the Holy Spirit that no matter what I'm going through, I know this, God is sovereign, God is at work, and I'm going to make it. And see, this is what happened. There was joy. And why was there joy? Because a community was being changed. Whether this is the city or a city, the point was God was at work in a city. I mean, everybody else is noticing Laurel for all this stuff. Thanks. Everybody else, thanks. Don't you wish in the midst of all this that's going on in our city, in our community, in our county, don't you want God to break down and restore? Don't you want God to revitalize? Don't you want God to build His church? Don't you want God to advance the gospel? People from the outside moving our community for whatever reason. It's not just that we go. Sometimes God brings people to us. Why? Proclaim Christ. Out to Judea, out to Samaria, the page is turned. Let's be faithful. Father, thank You for the Scriptures. Thank You for the Word. Thank You for our inadequacy, but Your sufficiency. Lord, I'm thankful that Philip didn't have to proclaim himself when he got to Samaria. But I'm thankful for the unnamed Christians that were faithful to proclaim Christ. Lord, I'm thankful that persecution didn't stop Your work It fueled it. Help us as your people 
to trust Your sovereignty, trust Your goodness. Lord, help us to proclaim Christ this week. Wherever we are, You put us in so many unique places that we can never put ourselves in. Lord, we, we, want, we want great joy in our city. We want great joy in our community. We want to see spiritual change, Lord. We want to see people get saved. We want to see people get baptized. We want to see your church grow. And God, we just don't pray that for, for Crosspoint. Lord, as one pastor prayed, would you, would you set one church on fire and then let it come touch us? Whether we're the agents that you use to bring revival in our community or Lord, whether it comes through somebody else, Lord, we just, we just want to see you work. Lord, I do thank you that you even save enemies of the gospel like you will save Saul coming up in the book of Acts. So God, I pray this morning as maybe our minds are, are thinking about, maybe there's a Saul of Tarsus in our life, somebody that hates us, somebody that just is an enemy of truth, that God, you would, you would just burden us for them, that we would pray for them. So we prayed for the hawker this morning, God, that we would pray for Saul of Tarsus to come to faith. So Lord, as you're just scattering the word in our hearts this morning, we pray for obedience, for faith, to take you at your word, to believe you. Church, as we sit before him this morning, as the word's been taught to our hearts, how is God leading you? Perhaps you just need to stay seated when everybody else stands and pray. I'll be at the back if you need to talk to somebody. We've got ladies available too. If you'd like to speak to a lady for prayer, for counseling, we're here for you. In just a moment, we're going to stand and we're going to worship Jesus. Talk to Him, pray to Him. Maybe there's some repair you need to do in your life, some confession. You can do that. I'll be at the back if you need me. Father, take Your Word, work it in our hearts, and we thank You in Jesus' name. Amen. Lead us, Daniel.